Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. For the first time, one volume includes a discourse analysis of every writing in the New Testament. Discourse analysis of written texts involves examining units of language higher than the sentence and considering how the author used those units of language to accomplish communicative purposes. But discourse analysis is not a clearly defined method. Rather, it is a linguistic perspective that provides numerous ways to approach and better comprehend a discourse. For this reason, most analysts bring their own unique research questions about a discourse and, therefore, their own methodology. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Todd A. Scasewater about the new book which he edited and contributed to, Discourse Analysis of the New Testament Writings. Dr. Scasewater earned his PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary and is Assistant Professor of International Studies at Dallas International University and a member of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Dr. Scasewater, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. I really appreciate you having me here. Yeah, I wonder if you could begin this interview by just telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Definitely. I uh, I grew up in the church and... um, read the Bible here and there, but I eventually got led into youth ministry. And I started teaching in the youth part-time as I was going through college. And I quickly realized that I was running out of things to teach the kids because I had never really uh, learned how to study the Bible for myself. And so I was just teaching what I had picked up uh, throughout my childhood in church. And this eventually led me, uh, long story short, to seminary where I was just in love with studying the Bible because it was, uh, I was finally for the first time feeding myself uh, from the scriptures, learning who God is, and learning the the richness and the depth of scripture. So uh, through seminary, I was encouraged to continue on to do PhD studies. And so I was able to uh, get into the program at Westminster and further pursue hermeneutics, uh, New Testament, Old Testament studies there, and I uh, just continued to uh, be in love uh, ever since then with studying the scriptures. That's awesome. It's definitely ed- evident in this volume. And so let's just start right from the beginning. Can you begin by explaining discourse analysis, maybe like its history and relevance for biblical studies? Yeah, definitely. Discourse analysis is difficult to define, but... Uh, It really started back kind of in the 60s. There were some linguists who were interested in seeing how grammar was affected by um, co-text or the text before and after, in other words, what we would normally call context in biblical studies. But things like, uh, why do you use a pronoun instead of referring to the person's name in some cases and and not others? Uh, how, How is later text affected in the way that it's composed by previous text? So these kind of text grammars uh, were a research question for a while, and this led to further uh, interest in how 
language functions at the level above the sentence. Uh, why do we produce sentences the way we do? Why do we order them the way we do? Why do we um, use conjunctions in some places and not others? How do we signal logical connections between sentences or temporal connections? Sometimes we use conjunctions. Sometimes we use discourse markers. Uh, how do um, how do social factors influence the way we produce and receive language? Why is it that I can say certain things to someone from my culture and they understand it automatically, but someone from another culture uh, isn't able to understand? I have to explain certain assumptions and contextual things from my culture, uh, and that helps them to then receive the discourse coherently. So things like um, how do we receive language coherently when it's multiple strings of sentences put together is a big research question. And um, what is the nature of coherence? How do we receive discourses? Um, strings of sentences are things that we, you know, you read sentence one, sentence two, sentence three. But can you take a string of sentences and say that they together have a meaning or that they together have a function? So these are all um, common research questions in discourse analysis. Some people nowadays will call it discourse studies because what that gets at is that this is really a field of study. It's not a tool or a method per se, uh, or I should say it's not a method. It is a tool, but discourse studies is a, a field of investigating language and how it functions when you have strings of sentences that are put together in kind of a coherent manner or a manner that's able to be coherent for a hearer. And then um, what, what biblical scholars have done and people in certain fields, they've taken these insights um, about the nature of discourse and how it works, how we produce it and how it's received. And then they apply those insights to written texts. So when biblical scholars talk about discourse analysis, what they're usually talking about is analyzing a biblical text uh, from start to finish and trying to find um, patterns and global meaning to the text and that sort of thing. But what they're really doing is taking insights that we've learned since the 60s and 70s, especially, and then applying those insights across a text, often systematically, in order to uh, better understand how that discourse is structured and how it's functioning. Yeah. And so if, you know, our audience wants to know what that looks like. This is an amazing resource to do that. So let's talk about the contents of, of this book. There are 22 contributing authors who together in this work give discourse analysis of, of each New Testament book. So what, what, they, what, what can the reader anticipate about each approach? Are the methodologies the same or are they different? Yeah, in some sense, all of them have some commonalities. There, there are some, some things like everyone is concerned with cohesion, which is kind of like the explicit uh, surface level indicators that bind the text together. Things like using uh, words from a similar semantic field or using uh, conjunctions to bind things together. Everyone's kind of concerned with that. Everyone's kind of concerned with coherence. Like why are these documents coherent for the, the reader? Um, but beyond that, everybody's got very different perspectives. Some people are using different linguistic uh, methodologies or camps, like some people use systemic functional linguistics uh, as kind of their methodological undergirding. Other people are more eclectic. Some people are using functional grammar. 
Uh, some people are very concerned with information structure and how constituents of sentences are ordered. And um, other people are more narrative in their approach. Uh, and then several people um, are relying on Robert Longacre's approach, which was uh, ultimately developed from tagmemics and, and then developed further on beyond that. So there are a variety of, you know, methodologies undergirding the different um, chapters. But ultimately, I tried as the editor to make these chapters look very similar in in what they accomplished. So you'll see that every chapter begins with an introduction and a methodology. I wanted everybody to explain their methodology so that the reader could see what what are they getting ready to do and how is that methodology going to be different from the other chapters. And then I, ha- I asked everybody to also start with an, the next section to be macro structure. Uh, and that word means different things to different people, but uh, essentially what I was asking everybody to do was say, explain to us how this discourse works as a whole, not just as a string of sentences or a string of sections. And so everybody has a macro structure section. And then beyond that, everybody goes into kind of defending that macro structure, examining the smaller units. Uh, and then some other people do some other things as well. And there are chapters that, that could be helpful. So you'll find some, some diversity of methodologies and diversity of concerns some people, for instance, might be concerned about register. Uh, some people might be concerned about uh, specific text critical issues. And then other people aren't concerned with that at all. But everybody's getting at what's the macro structure here? How does this document hold together? How's it work? And then everybody's using ver- a variety of tools from discourse studies to support their proposed macro structure and to do their analysis. Right. So, yeah, even in the variety, there are a few things that remain um, commonalities through all the approaches. So in this work, you provide a discourse analysis of Ephesians and Colossians, as well as you co-author one on the Gospel of Matthew. What benefits of discourse analysis do you uncover in your chapters? Like, what do you see is the ideal way to use discourse analysis? Yeah, there's, so there's definitely no ideal way, uh, I would say. I would say it's just a, an array of insights that allows us to probe a discourse from a variety of perspectives. So it all depends on what your research question is. So let's take Ephesians and Colossians as examples. My goal with Ephesians was to really just kind of do an overarching analysis of what's the macro structure, how might we, uh, and what I mean by macro structure is kind of a global meaning. We talk about the meaning of a sentence. So a macro structure for me is like, what's the meaning of this discourse, which can then be represented in some sort of uh, semantic representation, like uh, very similar to an abstract or a summary. Uh, it, it kind of models the way that we process and remember and store a discourse in our memory. We condense it. We pull out the the most prominent aspects. So I wanted to say, what's the macro structure of Ephesians? And especially in the second half of the letter, there's um, it's, it's very difficult to figure out how all these paragraphs fit together and all the commentaries handle them differently. It's hard to figure out where some of the boundaries uh, begin and end. And it's hard to figure out what he's doing with the therefores. There's a bunch of therefores in chapters four to six. But because the, you know, Ephesians is often considered a circular letter, uh, and, and I think it probably was. So there's not a specific 
issue in the congregation that Paul is writing to them to say, hey, this is going on. So I didn't have anything specific to say, I want to learn more about this, like what Paul is addressing. Um, I did discover something about kind of the main theme of the letter, what's most prominent, how the rest of the letter is supporting that and functioning. But when I came to Colossians, I had a different research question. I, I, I wanted to figure out, can discourse analysis help me understand something better about the Colossian heresy or teaching or philosophy, whatever you want to call it? I want to learn something new about the opponents that maybe discourse analysis can give me an insight into. So I carried out the same steps of dividing it up into units and then figuring out how these uh, function hierarchically, what's more prominent, and then kind of uh, work using these macro rules to reduce and generalize to get these uh, semantic representations of the units at successively higher levels. And what I actually argue in that chapter is that I think the final section, chapter four, uh, is actually where Paul is showing us what he's really trying to do with this letter. Uh, I actually argue it, that the Colossians is functioning very subtly as a recruiting letter for the Colossian and the Laodicean congregations. He invites them to join his ministry in prayer, and he also uses a bunch of linguistic and rhetorical uh, techniques to uh, hint at the, the fact that if they would remain orthodox in their theology and not succumb to this philosophy, that uh, they could join his mission and be part of the Pauline mission. Now, I, so I came in with a research question of, I want to learn more about the Colossian philosophy. I discovered that discourse analysis actually didn't help me discover anything new that hasn't already been said. I was a little, little bummed by that. I was hoping to provide some sort of insight. But when I discovered that um, my pragmatic analysis, in contrast to the semantic analysis, suggested that that fourth division of the letter, the very end, was where that, that's where Paul is uh, showing his cards, so to speak. He's, he's showing us why he wrote the letter. We all think he wrote the letter to address this Colossian philosophy, and he did, but he seems to be doing that for a further reason. Uh, he wants to ensure that they remain theologically orthodox and hold to the faith that was delivered to them uh, so that they could then join his ministry and be useful and, and not be uh, part of these, these uh, rival false teachers that keep uh, infiltrating his churches. So two different research questions, one for Ephesians, just general, uh, what's the structure and how does this all fit together? So I use some very common tools that a lot of people use in discourse analysis. But then for Colossians, I, I integrated, uh, you know, ancient rhetorical theory, uh, was looking at different rhetorical techniques that Paul was using, looking at verbal allusions from one part of the discourse to the next, looking at how Paul, uh, kind of some cognitive elements of how Paul uh, reactivate some concepts earlier in the letter in order to reinforce them and bring them back in to that macro structure, the, how people are processing it in their memories. Uh, he's reactivating concepts and reinforcing them. So I use a slightly different set of tools there. And uh, for Matthew, Matthew was also a different set of tools because it's a narrative. And so it's not an expository text type or a hortatory text type. Um, so I, we use a different set of tools there, there as well. But uh, I'll, I'll save uh, discussing Matthew for another time. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate um, these chapters, and I think you model very well um, how discourse analysis can provide great textual insights. Um, so when you talk about having a question that you come to the text with, I just kind of want to end with 
Um, like, how would you advise those who are interested in biblical studies, which is our primary audience, to incorporate discourse analysis? Like, maybe how would you guide people in their um, questions as they come to discourse analysis and the types of things that they are looking for um, discourse analysis to provide? Yeah. Um, well, I'd say, first of all, in the very back of the book, we have a select bibliography for discourse studies. Uh, a lot of people begin in discourse analysis by reading something from a biblical scholar who has read linguists and then is applying some insights they've learned to biblical texts. And that's totally fine. Uh, but if you want to begin at the source uh, with the linguists themselves, you can you can use this select bibliography to find some of the classic works that have been most influential in discourse studies. Um, one of the... Uh, one of the most influential texts has been Brown and Ewell's uh, Cambridge textbook in linguistics. It's just called Discourse Analysis. It's a red volume. Uh, it's actually not in the select bibliography. That one got missed. But there's also um, Bogrand's and Dessler's, uh, Dressler's Introduction to Text Linguistics. That's the first one. Those are both written in the early 80s, but they're still useful for giving you an orientation to the kind of issues that are involved in discourse studies. So I would say find some of the introductory textbooks written by linguists and see what kind of questions linguists are bringing to language itself. After kind of getting some orientation to that, then you might read some texts uh, or, or some articles or some books written by people like the essays in, the, in this volume, uh, applying those insights to a text. See what, see what questions other people are bringing to the biblical text. Uh, as you see the questions they're bringing, you might start to form some of your own. Uh, for me, uh, one of the questions that's become more important is not so much how is, how is this writing structured? Um, you know, that can relate more to the syntax and even kind of the semantics. I've become much more interested in the pragmatics of language, uh, of discourse. That's like how context uh, relates to the text, how the, the user of the text relates to the forms that they use. Um, so this involves context and what's in their, their mind, what's in the, the minds of the recipients, how that functions together, communication theory. I've developed these sorts of research questions uh, that are far more interesting to me nowadays than things like structure, which structuralism and narrative analysis has already beaten, beaten to death. Uh, so looking at some of these other chapters and seeing what are people getting at and then finding um, what are some helpful insights that I have gained by reading other discourse analyses of biblical texts. When you find those insights, uh, then you might start to look for those sorts of issues in other writings and say, hey, I wonder if that also shows up in another writing. Uh, I was When I was looking at Colossians and I had this research question about, does discourse analysis help me better understand what Paul is addressing in the letter, the, the problem he's addressing? I took that question over to Ephesians and then I said, you know, this doesn't really help me here. So instead, I'm going to revert to another research question that people have brought, which is what's the overall structure of this writing and how did each of the units contribute to that hierarchical structure that we're suggesting here? Um, so bring in a few questions and then test them out. And if they don't get you anywhere, bring in some more questions. But overall, I find that uh, macro structure has been probably the most helpful concept for me because we're interested in... Um, how language functions above the level of the sentence. And if we're going to do that, then we got to say, uh, 
units of language at whatever level have a meaning and a function. So we can ask, what is the meaning and the function of this entire discourse? And that for me is what macro structure is. So that's a question I bring to every discourse. What's the macro structure here? If there is a text and it has coherence of any sort, it's going to have a macro structure. And then after determining the macro structure, I'll usually fan out from there and say, I noticed some really interesting things like he's inferring things a lot. So maybe there's some shared knowledge between him and the recipients. And I should explore that a little more. You know, what kind of things is he saying that they could only understand it if they have shared context? And what will that tell me about their shared context that might help me understand something more about Paul and his ministry and the churches he relates with? So issues like that pop up. I chase them down and uh, I've kind of discovered a lot of these research questions just from reading commentaries, you know, the typical experience in biblical studies, but then also seeing the kinds of insights that people can dig up from doing uh, discourse analyses of biblical texts. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful for our audience. And um, yeah, I'm just so grateful for this work. Well, before we wrap up, would you mind sharing with us um, what projects you're working on next? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, first of all, there's a companion um, two-volume set that we're working on. I'm working on this with uh, Joanna Hoyt, who's also at Dallas International. She's a, a Hebrew discourse scholar. That's her focus. And so I'm really excited to be working on co-editing two volumes with her. Uh, the first one will be on the narrative text of the Old Testament. And then the second one uh, will be all the other texts, the poetic and uh, prophets. They have uh, some significant problems that we're going to have to think through before we work on planning that volume, like the compositional nature of oracles that are slapped together and who slapped them together and when were they put together and all the kind of contextual issues about that. So those are things we're working on, the companion volumes. Um, I've, this is my second year at Dallas International, so I'm still focusing the majority of my time on new coursework and, and some articles are arising out of those have a couple essays I'm working on on economics and in, in, in the biblical texts uh, coming up for the fall, uh, and a couple other book projects that are on the horizon, but still really in the uh, the research phase, trying to get some papers done on those and present them. But um, one further book that will definitely be in the future, I don't know how far, is going to be one on um, discourse analysis for ministry. I'm really interested in laying out a very simple. Uh, a theoretical basis for discourse analysis, and then a very simple step-by-step methodology that pastors could use to perform a discourse analysis on a text as they're preparing for sermons, and then to give some examples and to integrate. You know, I've done a lot of preaching, so I'm kind of uh, got a foot in both worlds there, and I'd love to help bridge that divide for pastors. I just think discourse analysis is so useful for coming up with a structure for your sermon figuring out what those main points should be, uh, where do the illustrations go, how can they be most effective. So uh, a shorter book on that uh, will be forthcoming, hopefully within the next uh, three to five years. Well, that is exciting. Uh, I just want our audience to know that this work, Discourse Analysis of the New Testament Writings, is such a great tool for studying every New Testament book, for seeing the varied methods of discourse analysis in action and I mean, it's an amazing work. It's very substantial, over 700 pages and quite a, uh, quite a reference work for um, all students of biblical studies in the future. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this edition of New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Again, I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read. <laughs>